And as you're doing that, why don't you turn with me to Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through to 7. That's Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through to 7. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder. Twelve stones in all, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you will tell them, They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. The title of my message today is, What's Your Future? Legacies of the Past Shaping Your Tomorrow. To bring a little bit of orientation to this scripture, Joshua had just crossed the River Jordan from a dark place of captivity. Finally, he brings them through into the Promised Land. Now he gets these men to take up large boulders, not tiny stones, but huge boulders, to carry them on their shoulder because they would have been big and they would have been heavy, in excess maybe of 100 pounds. Now these boulders are heavy, these boulders are big, these boulders are significant because they mark and represent something highly important in the life and journey of God's people. They needed these stones to be a pillar. They needed these stones to be a monument. They needed these stones to be a marker of the great things God has done in the past because these stones not only will help them in the future, but they will give them strength into it and bring them revelation and insight when they look back of the goodness of the living God who brings people through from a dark place into the light of his glory. It was an insignificant moment. Our nation has some very important memorial stones as well that we must ourselves remember as believers for our future. Legacies from the past that will shape your future. I want to go back a little bit to the 17th century. And in particular, I want to paint a picture and show us the backdrop of the 18th century, an era that was dark, an era that had drifted from God, and catastrophe reigned. The thin edge of the wedge, the seeds that were formed for the 18th century darkness, first began its roots and the thin edge of the wedge was wielded back in the 17th century. 
that would bring a tidal wave of destruction to the 18th century. What came around in that time was changes in the law. Changes in the law that would quieten and immobilize on-fire believers in that time. It would impact society on the whole, religion, education, the whole culture that people lived in. Clergy who challenged such laws were actually banished from their position. Indirectly, freedom of speech was being suffocated and stoking fire amongst people to rise up and say, hey, this isn't right. We are on the trajectory here if these things to continue for destruction and not for good, for ill and not for glory. Watered down conformists began to fill this power vacuum that these on fire believers and moral upholders of Christian values were being brushed aside and left. A law actually came to pass that Anglican bishops and clergy were no longer officially able to meet to discuss church ecclesiastical matters. With little correction then available or accountability with one another or sharpening iron to stoke up a fire and be strong and united, the clergy began to become discouraged and waned and they began to behave autonomously. In time, biblical thinking and conduct was almost extinguished during this era. In this place, in the power void, new Puritan priests, the Puritan priests had their wings of priesthood and the wings of their prophetic insight cut they were stagnant. They were straight-jacketed into a non-spiritual, empty, cold religion of that age. The moral compass had disappeared. The church had lost its footing and worldliness settled upon it. And the church, uh, the worldness through the church just began to spread like utter wildfire through the nation. This was the embryos. This was the seeds of what then would light a fire of darkness into the 18th century. New world views started to come in place, namely deism, the notion that God existed the world and he's now just stepped back, he's minding his business and we're left to just get on with it. Naturally, without no vertical connection to the living God, the creator of all things that sustains all things, naturalism and relativism began to reign. That would naturally breed self-effort and human wisdom and, uh, and, and human endeavours and will and ambitions. And I don't need to insult your intelligence to know what happens and what the word says about man when he's left about his own course of life without no vertical link and direction from the living God. Things were playing out and they were going to lead to utter disaster. The church was muzzled. The church was fragmented. There was no sense of unity or power to begin to rise up and unify and cut at the heart of these anti-Christ notions and worldviews that were coming into place. 
Deitism led to rationalism, led to skepticism, led to cynicism. And all the power and credibility of the church and the people who uphold the moral values of this nation were lost and were fragmented. Anarchy reigned. The church became corrupt and England became very, very dark in every sense of the word. Now these fruits now began to bear its biggest fruit in the 18th century. There was no morality, there was no cohesion. The brutal slave trade began to ignite and come into full swing during that time. The industrial revolution came into full swing and with no moral compass, with no workers' rights, with man purely focused on their own endeavours, brutality through that began to reign itself. It was all about power. It was all about profit. It was all about prominence of man and disaster reigned. Evil reigned. The neglect and treatment of children was horrific. By the mid-18th century, three out of four children under the age of five died. They were either murdered and left to perish in the streets or abandoned by heartless nurses. Imagine the scene and the backdrop of this, our very nation, only some few hundred years ago. At the core, poverty reigned, violence reigned, prostitution reigned, and murder reigned. A quote by a bishop back in 1738, backed up by many historians to this day, said these words, religion and morality in Britain had collapsed to a degree that was never before known in any Christian country. Disaster. Why am I giving a bit of a history lesson here? Well, history is one of the greatest allies that we have in our life. It helps you to understand the past and thereby predict the future. History is cyclical. It may be packaged differently, but the essence is the same. It also aids you to avoid great mistakes in your life. We learn from the past in our own lives. We learn from the past of history in other people's lives. We learn of the past of nations who have made mistakes and have done great things equally. And we observe that and we mirror that so we can project that into our futures for good and not for ill. History is one of your greatest allies. With it, it will put us in good stead to be able to observe the landscape of what is to come. We have one eye back and one eye forward, managing and directly and spiritually discerning our path forward so we can lead into righteousness and truth and avoid the pitholes that former people have gone to that have led to great destruction. History is our ally. Now, this coming about in the 18th century should really be no surprise, and uh, the coming of evil should be no real surprise to any of us when we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 25, where it states that there was a time on the backdrop again of a dark time when people were worshipping the creation instead of the creator. Now... 
when we take our eyes off the stones of memorial of our nation and of our own lives, anarchy begins to reign. When we begin to focus our eyes on the creation opposed to the creator, we begin to lose our orientation. We begin to fix our eyes forward, both eyes wholeheartedly, and we forget the things of the past that are going to empower us and aid us for the things and ways into the future and into your futures. So much of what we take for granted in our nation around us today is from Christians, from non-conformist Christians to anti-Christ governments or anti-Christ religions in many sense, who decided to take the gospel at its word, staple their colours to the mast and live for it wholeheartedly. Now, the righteousness and some of the truth and the uh, liberty that we get to live in today is through great believers who have stood up tall and put their head above the parapet for the good of our nation. You see, if we begin to focus on the created things as opposed to the creator, then we begin to focus on the, 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 the form of something and not the substance. Uh, you could say that we focus on the, the relationship and we forget the core essence of love. We, we look at our house and we forget that the home that it is. We focus on the mind and we forget the spirit. We focus on the flesh and we forget the spirit. We, we focus on ambition and we forget the will of the Father. We get sucked in to a cyclical way. And John 15, 5 says, um, speaks of a people uh, and exhorts us to, to say that he is the vine and we are the branches. Without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. It's a picture of people that disconnect themselves through the creator who has created an environment of good for us, neglected it, and ran our own way. We need to be rooted. We need to stay centered to the creator. He is the vine. We are the branches. Without him, we can do nothing. But on this backdrop of the 18th century in this dark, dark time for this nation, God was going to bring into it a firebrand of a man under the name of Jen Wesley, born in 1703, a man whose heart was strangely warmed and came alive to the fire of the living God. He came on fire himself for the things of him. This, this, this warming of his heart through God, would, would shape his thinking, would, would soften his heart and understanding to the environment and to the time. It would give him some zeal and some boldness to rise up and challenge and tackle some of which was going on in this very, very dark era at great cost to him. He wanted to build a pillar of light and he would become a firebrand for Britain to expose the Antichrist ways and, and the darkness of Britain. And he was about to warm the icy hearts of people's lives and he was going to bring them back to their creator. He was going to bring them back to the source of salvation and the source of strength where every bit of life for good stems from. Not without great resistance, far from it. 
He would put his head against the tide and he against the wind and he would be oppressed and hit on many angles and from many, many levels. But the man stood steadfast in the word of God and decided to do what was right according to the gospel regardless of his environment and people's opinions. He was a man who would pierce the darkness with the light of the gospel. One day he was invited to speak in an open-air field. Now, he was an Anglican uh, minister at the time, and this was uh, uh, quite different, and it wasn't really going along with protocol. But a gentleman you may know called George Whitfield invited him to come and preach in an open field to minister to, to people, and that he did. Unbeknown to George Whitfield or Wesley at that time, a great inferno was to be set that day that was about to emblazon through this nation and begin to get it back on track into the things of God and not the ways of man that lead to destruction. He would go on to preach the gospel from that moment, a defining stone in our history that we must never, ever forget. A quarter of our population were converted to the Lord Jesus from that point. Many places, villages and towns were completely transformed. Such the whole of the character of the nation was being restored back to God. Many historians actually believe that it was because of this great move of God through Wesley, through our nation, that we managed to overt a great French revolution that brought up so much bloodshed here in our own very country because people were coming home back to morality and back towards which was right. Wesley was a catalyst to bring us back on track and back in line. It would be a significant, heavy stone that has been laid in our Christian path that we would do well, that we must look back to and remember. Not just the backdrop of what was taking place in that time, because we may see in this time, many of which what was going on in those days, being echoed, packaged differently in our time and our age. Are we going to allow the thin edge of the wedge for great destruction to come into our nation in this time? What areas have wedges already been formed in your lives maybe, in this nation lives? Where do we need to prophetically observe that and stand up to it? What seeds have been sown that if left to breed will bring utter destruction and darkness for our great nation that is built on Christian values and Christian morals? You see... We've got to focus on the horizontal and the vertical. You see these great men, Wesley, for example, and maybe Finney, the great revivalist there in America. These men we know very well for their great revivals, for a great just supernatural outpouring of God through them that, that, that changed nations. But what we hear little of is their hearts for social reform. 
was their utter desire not just to receive this great glory of the living God through signs, wonders and miracles and changed hearts. All that is very, very important. But these were men who knew the significance of taking the light of the gospel and taking that fire and going to bulldoze it into every dark recess of society and every dark recess of life. They were social reformers who observed the darkness of the plain and weren't just happy with a holy huddle, but wanted all of society to be transformed for the good of the nation and its people. They were social reformers and they were transformers. They wanted to see the gospel in action. They just didn't want to see the vertical manifestation of God's power. They wanted it horizontally to just distributed through every facet and asset of society, people's lives, every corner of the workplace, every aspect of family life to bring reform, to, to bring a mirror of morality to people who are going a wayward place, who are drifting far away from God. These were powerful men and women of God who needed and wanted so much to take the lantern of the living God into every part of its being, regardless of a cost. Conversion must lead to change in society. Conversion must lead to change in society. Let me ask you a question today. Where's the moral decay in your circle of influence? What sparks are coming off you to begin to ignite change and the fire for the living God in those realms? Where is the thin edge of the wedge you observe being formed? Now, some the, the delusion and the deception of these thin edges of the wedge and uh, maybe a little bit of tolerance here is that eventually the whole destruction comes behind it. It's deceptive. And sometimes we can leave it for a moment, but eventually it will take root. And the longer we leave it, the longer it will take root and be harder to erase further down the line. The sparks from Wesley's flyer in the 18th century that was transforming a nation would begin to spark into history would begin to spark into the future. And it was about to get men and women emblazoned to be set apart from the chaos and darkness of the day to bring about great light of transformation in their, ear, in their era. Some hearts that caught the spark of this great awakening and stapled their colours to the mast to stand up in that day to bring the light of Christ to a nation was three areas or three people I'd like to share with you very, very briefly and the areas of society that had decayed but that these men and women were about to rise up and transform for good. What areas of society do you need to transform for good? It's said that a civilization is rightly judged by how it treats People. A civilization is rightly judged by how it treats people. With that notion in mind, if this is true, which it is, then you would see 
that this in the 18th century and leading into the 19th century was a nation that would be heavily judged because the crown of God's creation, his people that he sent his only son to die for were being persecuted and were being treated with utter disdain. It was nothing short of horrific. But men and women of God who caught the sparks from Wesley were about to rise up and bring transformational change that you and I, you'll be surprised in what we live in today and may take for granted. In that, are we serving the creation and enjoying the things of the creation? Are we forgetting the stones of memorial of the great men and women of God who have paved our way for the created things that we enjoy today? Have we forgotten those things? Are we subconsciously disconnecting us from the vine of our history, from the author of the great things that have been established in your life and our nation? On the backdrop here, in the late 18th century, early 19th century, the slave trade was absolutely raging. The utter hurt and chaos that were caused to men and women and treated soulless as human slaves. People were putting profit over people. Wilberforce, a politician in the 17, uh, 1759 to 1833, believed wholeheartedly from inspiration from Wesley that the teachings of Jesus Christ emphasized the humanity and rights of every believer. They began to campaign against this great atrocity of the day. The slave trade was making absolute fortunes. And those who opposed it were bitterly opposed by dark powers of that day. People were fixated on profit, wealth and power in, in, above people. And the, the normal morality for all of mankind... God's creation was being defaced and devalued. And there's only so long God will allow that to happen until he intervenes. Wilberforce was a man, backed up by a man we probably hear little of, but very significantly, a man called Thomas Clarkson. Money was winning over morality. Wesley's last, last ever letter was actually till Wilberforce, encouraging him to keep on going with fighting against this tyranny and anarchy of the age. It was completely humane. But the Christian voices begin to grow as their hearts began to soften and see the barbarity that was taking place. Clarkson began to establish presser groups and lobbying groups and they began to rally and they began to challenge what was taking place for the good of the people. Finally, 20 years on, Wilberforce achieved his aim. But let's not forget the great Thomas Clarkson. Wilberforce was in the spotlight, yes. Originally, it was desired that Clarkson would take forward this mantle. But he took a step back and said, no, no, no. I think Wilberforce is a better man to face this up. But if you look, the planning and the thinking behind this great move was really related to Clarkson. 
He was the first man that pioneered campaigns and pressure groups. He was the man who pioneered a way to bring about democracy in a nation. How much do we take for granted today that you are able to express your opinion? How much do you appreciate that you're able to go to the ballot box and have your voice heard that hopefully you can orientate this nation for good and not for bad? How much do you take that for granted today? That is a created thing from men and women of God who petitioned for that at much heartache for the good of you and I. Democracy, modern day campaigning. You see, Isaiah 58.6 speaks so clearly of God's heart for this area that these men were carrying for good for our nation that we get to live in the fruits of today. It says, let's say, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim the captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor is coming. And in Isaiah 58, 6, you catch the heart of God again that these men were carrying for this nation when he says, no, this is the kind of fasting I want from you. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten and burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that blind people. What did these men achieve for us? They achieved for you and I today that we must look back on and remember the ability to express your opinion, to give you the ability to fight for your human rights, to fight for morality for this nation, to fight injustice and bring democracy and good to a nation. Men and women moved by God before us have carried their stone and set the benchmark for you and I to build on today. The suffragettes, for example, the great movement to fight for women's rights. The innovation came from this day. A spark from Wesley into Wilberforth Hart, into Clarkson's Hart, went on and set the template for modern-day campaigning, the suffragettes, the great US civil rights movement, Live Aid more frequently, and Make History Poverty, all build upon the framework of campaigning and the model that they have set for us. We owe our debts to the abolitionists who have set the precedent for you and I today. Are we remembering these stones? Are we taking for granted the great liberties that we have in our life, that men and women of God of foregone year have died for us? Lest us not forget. Niall Ferguson of Harvard and Oxford asked, what was going to turn Britain from the world's leading enslaver to the world's leading emancipator? He said, the answer is Christianity. I don't know where there are shackles holding people back. I don't know where darkness is reigning in society. I have some good ideas. I don't know what the core issues are in your life, but I know one thing for sure. For you and for this nation, the key 
is Christianity, the values of the gospel and the power of the living God, our creator, and staying connected to the vine of the author and finisher of our faith. 20 to 30 million slaves. 20 to 30 million of God's created beings that he gave his son's life to die for is believed um, that was uh, um, enslaved during the slave trade, according to the US Department. 600,000 to 800,000 were trafficked across international waters a year. The conditions they lived in were barbaric. It's estimated in America that 2,500,000 were taken from Africa and sailed to America, and only 10.7 million actually arrived. When they died, there was no care for them. They were just tossed overboard uh, as, as a bit of meat who had no soul. Barbarous. Let me ask a question. Is this something of the past? Slavery? I, 20 to 30 million people, my apologies, is actually the statistic of slaves in our world today, according to the US State Department. If we look back to 12 million that were trafficked from Africa to America, when we look today, 20 to 30 million. Where is the light of the gospel shining in those areas and the voice shouting, no? During this backdrop of the 18th century, during the Industrial Revolution, Great atrocities were taking place equally. Because of this lack of moral compass, the complete silencing of the church, the, the wings of the, the, the ministers and the clergymen were, were cut off. There was no priestly voice to minister to the people. There was no prophetic insight was taking off. There was no ability to challenge the status quo of the day. That human rights in the workplace were non-existent. Britain became the workshop of the world. And during the great empire, it was concerned that how we treated people here would be magnified across the whole world. The abuse of workers was horrific. It was slavery in the workplace. Britain then being a great power, it was great concern of the impact this would have globally. Christians in the name of the gospel began to rise up and, and speak against this. Christians who were catching the spark, still the remnants from Wilberforce, were beginning to address these issues. A gentleman who called Lord Shrewsbury actually was, was, was identified as being a man who could great, have great influences in the higher echelons of society and the political realm, chose to abandon that. For, to, to, for, for the good of God's people when he saw the treatment of people in the workplaces. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9, uh, a, a spark uh, and the, the heart of God that he was standing up for. 
said, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for them being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. This is what they were carrying. This is what they decided to fight for. He decided to to reach the good of the people in the name of Christ rather than to, to seek his own glory. These men and women or young children were forced to work 18 plus hours a day with, with, with no day off in absolutely horrific conditions. The, the pay was menial. If they went sick, there was no uh, health care cover. There was, there was no sick pay in those days. You didn't work. You didn't get paid. You didn't pull your weight. You didn't get paid. People were left to starve on the streets who couldn't manage themselves. They were completely abandoned. There was no care for them. But Shrewsbury began to stand up and said, no, no, we must set some parameters for these men and women. And he began to pioneer. And he began to change things. And bills were passed. Today, you and I live in the fruits of a healthy working environment, I hope, where you get sick pay, where you get holiday pay, when you get a day off a week, that if you get sick, you get paid. Why do we enjoy those great privilege? Because men like Lord Shrewsbury rose up and saw the injustice and petitioned to bring justice. Are we remembering some of the great stones that have been established in the past by our non-conformist Christians who put their head above the parapet. He could have lived in luxury. It was no skin off his nose how these people were being treated. But what stirred him in his core of his being that this isn't the values of the living God. This isn't the gospel being projected into society and put into action. This is wrong and he stood up for right and righteousness. Where is there injustices in your life, what are we turning a blind eye to? Where are we putting performance or profit or personal ambition and progress above God's crown of creation, his people? The people in those days in the Industrial Revolution were putting power over people. And God has something to say about that. We live in the fruits of the great workers' rights because of men like Lord Shrewsbury. And not only that, ladies, a lady called Charlotte Tonner was also a key influencer on identifying and highlighting this barbaric treatment of its people. Another great man, George Muller. In the time here, people were putting... Uh, uh, putting um, um, were putting um, uh, um, privilege over people. Um, it was a time where George Muller, uh, the great man here, uh, saw the starving children out on the streets um, uh, uh, with, with no one to care for, no one to look after them. Um, but he felt a burden for the lost. He felt a burden for the people on the streets and he wanted to provide them with a home and food and future protection. And he rose up and he petitioned and he said to himself in his heart, I will never ask people for any money to do this great burden that's been laid on my heart for these poor children. And he went about and he lived a life of faith. Some of the stories of this man is incredible. For example, he laid down with his children one day or sat down at the dinner table and they didn't have milk. 
to have their breakfast. But in that moment, a milk float broke down outside their very door, and he knocked on the door and said, just out of interest, sir, have you any need of any milk? Because I've broken down and it will just go off. In came barrels of milk for the children to have that breakfast today. They went down to have some, bre some bread for their breakfast one morning, and there was none there. But Muller said, let's pray as usual. And they prayed. In that moment, there was a knock on the door, and it was the baker. And he said, listen, I felt it prompted on my heart last night to put some extra batches of bread in the oven because I thought that you may need it tonight. This isn't just uh, Christian history. This is documented in non-Christian circles of the great miracles that took place in Muller's life to feed and care for the children. Not only that, it is estimated that Muller in his life, without asking for one penny of anyone, had given to him in excess of over 100 million pounds in modern day money. He built schools for the children. He built orphanages for the children. To this day, his name lives on, and he's a man who caught a blaze from Wesley's day to make a change and difference for society. Our young children are cared for, orphanages all around the country because of men like Muller, who highlighted the need for a moral compass to look after those who cannot look after themselves. Are we providing for children in our age and day? What needs do we see around us of our young children? Maybe it's not bread and milk, but maybe role models. And maybe raising them up in the rays of the things of God so they have a hope, so they have a future. Great men and women of God who stood on the word of God, just like Jesus, following the same values of him that said that in Mark 10, 16, then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. God's heart needs to resonate with our heart. We need to look back at the stones of our past. Remember the creator with the created things that he's established. Remember their origins because more has been pioneered for this nation and for the freedoms we live in than you can imagine. Schools. Do you know that the schooling that we have to this day hasn't always been available to us? It was only in the 18th, end of the 18th century that free education was given to all. That's not always been the case. Where was that pioneered from? Christians in play school established and pioneered the idea. The salvation through William Wilberforce, on which the welfare state that we live on today has been pioneered from him and modelled on to this day. Are we appreciative when the chips are down for the welfare state to uphold us and to provide for us? We gotta thank Christians, men like Wilberforce, who have established that for us. Orphanages, the YMCA, Barnardos, the NSPCC, the RSPCA, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Guides, food banks, the numerous amount of charities that give of their time to help 
people established by Christians. Healthcare today, NHS, is a slice of Christianity in action. Spiritual revival led to social cohesion, uniting people in a common cause with shared values to cherish the dream of liberty to all. We live in liberty today thanks to the people that have gone before us. It is said of the King James Bible that it's regarded as the most influential book in the history of English civilization. Margaret Thatcher, the great prime minister of this nation, said these words, we must not profess the Christian faith and go to church simply because we want social reforms and benefits or a better standard of behavior, but because we accept the sanctity of the life, the responsibility that comes with freedom and the supreme sacrifice of Christ. We are a nation whose ideals are funded on the Bible. Instead of Dominic Green, <laughs> hallelujah. Instead of Dominic Green, a man who was uh, 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 petitioned against by a small lobbying group to eradicate uh, that this nation is a Christian nation. This is what he, the great attorney general, stood up and said. Against, uh, um, he said, our state, its ethics, and our society are underpinned by Christian values. William Seward, 1801 to 72, an American Secretary of State, said, the whole of the hope of human progress is suspended on the ever-growing influence of the Bible. Immanuel Kant, a great German mind and philosopher of his day, said these words, the existence of the Bible as a book for the people is the greatest benefit which the human race has ever experienced. Around in your life today, where's the thin edge of the wedge to try and eradicate and erode our Christian values? Where are we forgetting the great weight of stones that have been established before? Are we giving God thanks for all that these men and women have paved for us today? Let me ask about your future. We have heard about some legacies of the past, but how are those legacies shaping your future. The great part of our church here in the third stranded cord of our 2020 vision is the giants. It's the area of mobilization because we see that we want to see a people who are out there in the highways and byways to take the light and the flame of the living God and begin to influence places for positive change. There is great bills being passed that are eroding at our heritage and our values of this nation. There is poverty, there is lack, there is oppression, and we as the Christian church and us as believers must shout loud to bring about change and to bring about the values of the gospel. Stay connected to the vine, don't drift. Remember the created things and most importantly, the creator of them. Give him the praise, give him the thanks. The world is blind, the world is dark to the things of Christ in many areas of society, but we are a people just like Wesley, 
just like the Finneys, just like the Whitfields, just like the Mullers, just like the Wilberforces, just like the Clarksons, just like the Charlottes, who have come to make a change and to maintain our Christian values, to point people back to the stones of memorial and to face people forward to the cross that brings liberty, life and hope. Without it, we fall into rot and decay. Hold on to the living God and the gospel with all of your heart. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We're stirred to our being that we will be a people who choose your created beings and your values and your gospel above profit, above earthly power, above privilege. We live for the gospel and we live for your awards. Our future, for good or ill, is dictated by the measure we stand on the word of the living God in every regard. Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Father, we pray for a, a match to be struck and a spark to ignite our hearts afresh, to open up the eyes of our understanding, to take a moment to look back in the great liberty that we live in today, that we may build upon the stones that have been established in the past, that we may carry our own stones of great responsibility to lay as a memorial for our future generation, for them to build on, for the gospel to advance. Father, we pray that the darkness of the age, wherever its manifestation, in our personal lives, in our workplaces, in our homes, in wider society and in government, will, eyes will be opened to re-establish and declare that this is a Christian nation built on Christian heritage. And from that place we will know that as long as we uphold the values of the gospel, stay anchored to the living God, that peace, justice, Hope and joy will reign. Father, we thank you for all that you are, all of your created being, and we give you all the glory and all the praise. May we rise up as men and women to be pioneers and nonconformists to bring about change and hope in our world and our nation. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.